0: So before we get into the text, since we had kind of a long break from it, I just want to review where we are. Remember, we're in Jerusalem during the Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion. For the last several passages, there's been this kind of ongoing debate between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the prominent Jewish leaders. For context, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and all the Jewish leaders, they're trying to get Jesus to say something that is blasphemous, or treasonous, so that they will have a valid accusation with which they can find him guilty and have him executed. Do you remember how Jesus threatens their status quo? They see that he's a danger to their religious influence, their political power, their lives of wealth, prestige, and high social status. Do you remember that this effort by them to trap him and kill him is the culmination of two years of anger, bitterness, hatred, rejection of him? So now he's here in Jerusalem. The threat has gone from a guy, uh, you know, uh, uh, not very well known, increasing in popularity, but he was just a guy wandering around from town to town doing teaching and miracles. And now... Jesus has come directly into the temple in Jerusalem to teach and challenge their authority at a prominent time when we know all the Jews would be gathered there. We know Jesus did not intend to start a religious war or a political revolution. We know that. But if he did, this would be the week to start one, wouldn't it? This has gone from something that could be dangerous and could happen to something that seems to be materializing before their very eyes. It's just just materialized, so now they're desperate and they're panicking. You can see the desperation because it forces compromise between groups that would normally not be willing to work together. The priests, the rabbis, the secular political class, and even opposing religious groups with incompatible beliefs, all conspiring together to trap him in his words. So that's the backdrop for today. Now we'll get into our text. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're just going to do the one section today, so we'll start with verse 28 and go through verse 34. Mark 12, verse 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the exhortation of the word this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so glad to be gathered here. We're so glad to sing your praise. We're so glad to be in fellowship with one another. Lord, we also are glad now to hear the word that you delivered to us. This timeless word, infallible, breathed out by your spirit. Lord, may it it cut us to the heart. May it change our lives. May it go out from us with power. Bless us now, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verse 28 starts with an introduction of a new character. Just like each paragraph in this chapter introduces a new person or a new set of people to the scene, this paragraph is no different. It says a particular scribe heard them disputing with one another. The verse continues, seeing that he answered them well. This tells us that as far as the scribes and the other Jewish leaders are concerned, Jesus has been so far able to avoid their traps. They're getting frustrated. He says things that are controversial, to be sure. But so far, he has not said anything illegal or heretical or sufficient to make him unpopular with the crowds who are following him. Any of these would have made the Jewish leaders happy. We also notice in the Greek here that it doesn't just mean that his answers were adequate. They're not just sufficient. Sometimes when we say someone did something well, it doesn't communicate the extent of how good it was. The word for well in the Greek here is a rich word. It connotates mastery. Jesus' answers are not merely sufficient or merely good enough. They're masterful. They are excellent. It's translated in the New American Standard and in other passages in 2 Corinthians to mean that the thing was done beautifully. And yet another passage as the thing being done easily. To the Jewish leaders, these arguments with Jesus are arguments that they have to win. They have to keep going back into their huddle, recruiting more men to help, constantly trying new approaches and laying new traps. Think about how he answered each one. The religiously privileged priest class, the Pharisees, they're so proud of their position and how they're elevated as the religious elite. They're the very highest in Jewish society. They think that they're the most righteous the ones God is most pleased with. And then, with the parable of the vine dressers, what happened? Jesus compared them to mere hired hands with no ownership at all among God's people. He shows how they're careless and bad stewards and thieves and, worst of all, murderers. And ultimately, how they're going to be struck down and their positions will be given to others. Unthinkable for them. Do you remember the Herodians who thought that political authority was the ultimate goal? And they tried to trap Jesus with a question about taxes. And he does what? He confounds them. He causes them to marvel by upending their entire worldview on which their question rested. He shows that ultimate authority belongs to God alone. Their trap fails. Do you remember how the Sadducees prided themselves on knowing the Scripture and the law? They think of themselves as experts, very studious. What does Jesus say directly to them? He doesn't pull any punches with them at all. He says, They don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. Remember, these are at least the most educated men in this society, if not the smartest. The Greek phrase telling us he answered them well communicates that Jesus wasn't even breaking a sweat. This is a debate that he is clearly winning, and easily, and so much so that it's obvious to everyone who's watching. It's going exactly the opposite of how the leaders hoped that it would go. So this single scribe sees how Jesus is not struggling to contend with his peers, and he asks him a question. Do you remember from the last few lessons on this? They've asked him numerous questions. We just talked about this. Some of the questions were ridiculous hypotheticals, right? But some of the questions were real. Like last time Paul was teaching us on this, the Sadducees came up with their, their it's a really silly scenario of seven brothers marrying the wife in succession after each one dies, and whose, whose wife is she in, the, in heaven after the resurrection? We know that's not a real question. But the question from the Herodians about the taxes, it was a real question. Real question or not, each question's intent is to trap, right? To trick him, to get him to stumble, to try to discredit him. So there's a little bit of nuance to this question from this scribe. The Matthew account tells us that the scribe asked Jesus this question to test him. That word for test can also be translated as to tempt him. However, the nature of the question and the way Jesus responds suggests that maybe this scribe is not quite as wicked as his contemporaries. The distinction here is that this question from this scribe does not seem to be in concert with the questions from the other scribes. The Mark account goes out of the way to point out that he, he kind of comes into this situation as someone who's responding to what he has observed, rather than the rest of them that came in with the intent to find a way to have Jesus killed. My reading of this shows me that he's he's still lost. His question is still not coming from a good place, but perhaps his lostness is a different degree of sin than the abject wickedness from his peers. Perhaps his heart is not so hard as theirs. So, what's the question? Which commandment is the most important of all? That's an interesting question coming from a scribe, isn't it? First, let's consider who's asking it a keeper and a teacher of the law. Why is he pondering this? Is it hard heartedness, like the other scribes and Jewish leaders? It doesn't seem like it. From what we've already studied and by what Jesus will say to him in a few minutes, But this is the type of question that a group of experts might disagree on, isn't it? What pleases God the most? Is it one of the Ten Commandments? Is it the sacrificial process? We can imagine them taking bets on what the answer would be. Perhaps he even asked it simply for his own amusement. So the question from the scribe is interesting. The scribe already knows the law and the commandments, and he probably has an idea about what he might think the answer is. Yet Jesus is going to take the opportunity to show how the most important commandment is one that drives at the true purpose of the rest of the law. It's the supreme command. It governs everything else. In answering, Jesus is going to tell him, what's the heart behind the law? What does God really want from us? What can we do that truly pleases him best? We can also recognize that Jesus sees, them, sees this as an opportune teaching moment to deliver both to the immediate crowd and in the gospel that will be written and passed down to us a central truth about God's desire for man and man's duty to God. Jesus simply answers the scribe's question directly with No negative commentary directed toward him. Look at his answer. We can read the whole passage. We already read the whole passage. You can scan it again. See if there's any holy snark, righteous sarcasm, any direct insult to their righteousness. There's nothing. He doesn't implicate the scribe in any sin with this question. He doesn't say anything like that. He, he doesn't want anything that's going to distract from the important truth coming across clear and plain. Every other interaction in this chapter, Jesus has something negative to say about the men disputing with him, but not the scribe. Jesus doesn't condemn him. He is clear and matter of fact. So now let's look at the answer. We'll read verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We've heard this before. I remember this very well. It was the subject of my very first sermon from this pulpit almost a year ago. I hope that some of you remember it. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. This is what Jesus is quoting. This was our scripture reading this morning. Do you remember the setting here? Moses is on his deathbed giving the law to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. This section is not only giving them the what and the how, but also the why. I'm not going to preach my whole sermon again from last time, but I want to remind you of what's important. We'll start with Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Do you remember this from last time? This is talking about the singularity of God. When we talked about this last time, we looked at Isaiah 45. You should go and read that on your own afterward and see if it doesn't put the fear of God into you. We're not going to turn there again. We're going to look at a number of other scriptures telling us the exact same thing consistently over and over and over. There's no one like God. Look on your own, you'll find dozens of passages, but let's just look through a few of these. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, talking about God's holiness. You don't have to turn there, I'm just going to go through these quick. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one beside you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Why use a rock as the descriptor? It's a thing that's immovable and doesn't change. Exodus 9.14, God does miracles, both great and terrible, to show his power and convince us that there's no one else like him. Exodus 9.14, talking to Pharaoh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 2 Samuel 7.22, talking about God's greatness. For this reason you're great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no god besides you according to all that we've heard with our ears do you see that god's greatness is by virtue of his singularity there's nobody like him he does not have any equal this one's neat look at jeremiah 10:7 who would not fear you o king of the nations indeed it is your due For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. He's worthy to be feared. There's nobody that would not fear him. Just a question for you to consider. In eternity past, before God created the heavens and the earth, was he worthy of worship? Non-rhetorical. Yes, he was. If he'd never done anything that he has done, would he still be worthy of it all? Regardless of circumstances, his very nature demands worship. It's due to him because of who he is. Do you remember when Jesus said in Luke 19.40? This is during the triumphal entry, and the people are shouting Hosanna, and the disciples are all excited, praising God. And the Pharisees come up and they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They're 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 making too much commotion. They shouldn't be doing this. What does he say? If they were silent, even the rocks would cry out. God must be worshipped. He must. Fear, love, worship are due to God because of his singularity, because he's the only one that's like him. He's the one true God, the maker of all things. But there's another piece to this. We worship God not only because he's the all-powerful creator who's worthy, and whose nature demands worship, but also because he's good. Psalm 135.3 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, because it is pleasant. We worship him because he's good. Thomas Watson's famous body of divinity explains the chief end of man, or to put it another way, the main and central purpose of man's existence It's twofold. Some, I hope most of you know this. It's to glorify God and what? To enjoy him. We often miss the second part, beloved. We're not just loving him because he's powerful, fearful, terrible, because he's the one in authority. Not just because we owe it to him, not just because of what he's done for us, but because he's good. And because we enjoy his goodness. Continuing in verse 5 in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the command Jesus is quoting. He already gave us the why. Because God's nature demands worship. It's due to him. He's worthy of it. And because he's good. Now he's telling us the extent to which our lives are to reflect worship of God. We'll just review heart, mind, soul, and strength briefly. Your heart loving God means that it pursues and embraces the truth of God. Our heart's response is how we describe the core of our being accepting or rejecting something. What was the first sin? It was desiring something other than God and what He prescribed. It was believing rather than rejecting a lie about God. It was failing to treasure God the most and pursue what would please Him the most. Instead, pursuing the pleasing of self. Loving God with our mind. It means using your mind to know the truth about Him, to pursue wisdom, to interact with His Word intellectually, to meditate on it and consider it all your days. To love God with our soul. Our soul is that deep seated place of longing that knows there is more than just the material. Our soul is what yearns for deeper meaning than just what our eyes see. Our heart, our mind, and our soul work together. Is yearning for and desiring God and pursuing and accepting the truth of his word and his nature and rejecting everything else. And meditating on him and thinking about him continually. What does it mean to love him with our strength? Or in some translations, with all our might. It means that our outward works reflect the inward reality of a heart, mind, and soul totally yearning for, totally focused on Him alone. We do everything we do in that reality. Practically, Jesus tells him, tells us this means what? It means to obey Him. That's John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see that one of those causes the other? You don't keep God's commandments in order to love him. Let me say that again. You keep his commandments because you love him. Let me say it a different way. You don't keep God's commandments in order to love him. Keeping his commandments is only something that can be done by someone who loves him. We've been off on this tangent for a while. Let's go back to Jesus and the scribe in Mark 12. Jesus answered the question, didn't he? It's not only the precursor to all the other commandments, but also contains the reason for them. God is the only God. He's worthy to be loved, adored, and worshipped with every part of your being. Nothing is held back from him. Your heart is to be in active adoration of him. Your mind is to be in meditation on him. Your soul, that spiritual place of longing, is to yearn for him. Your body, your strength, your physical acts are to reflect that love with a life of obedience. And now Jesus does something interesting, maybe unexpected. He gives a second part of the answer that the scribe did not ask for. Verse 31. Back in Mark 12. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The Matthew passage elaborates on this even a little more and there's something there that I want you to see turn over to matthew twenty two and we're going to look at this for a moment it starts in verse thirty four matthew twenty two thirty four the two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Look at what, what verse 39 says. It says, the second most important commandment is like the first commandment. The two commandments are similar. They are comparable. So that brings a few questions, doesn't it? First, what's the difference between the two commands? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself versus loving God with all your heart, soul, Mind and strength. J.C. Ryle's commentary is instructive here. Look what it says. How striking is our Lord's description of the feeling with which we ought to regard both God and our neighbor. We are not merely to obey the one or to abstain from injuring the other. In both cases, we are to give far more than this. We are to give love, the strongest of all affections and the most comprehensive. A rule like this includes everything. It makes all petty details unnecessary. Nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love. How striking again is our Lord's description of the measure in which we should love God and our neighbor. We're to love God better than ourselves with all the powers of our inward man. We cannot love him too much. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves and to deal with him in all respects as we would like him to deal with us. The marvelous wisdom of this distinction is clear and plain. We may easily err in our affections toward others, either by thinking too little or too much of them. We therefore need the rule to love them as ourselves, neither more nor less. We cannot err in our affection toward God in the matter of excess. He is worthy of all we can give him. We are therefore to love him with all our heart. Back to Elliot. I'm going to say something controversial here. It's not wrong to love yourself. It's actually good to love yourself. Now let me explain. I want us to understand why we love our neighbor as ourselves. God commands it. Yes, but why? It's something ontological. What does that mean? That means it has to do with the nature of our being so we need to look at our oranges. All the way back in Genesis 1.27, God said, Let us make man in our own image. Why is human life valuable at all? It's because people are made in God's image and made to reflect him. There's nobody like him, and yet he made us to rule the earth and take dominion over it as his representatives. He made us with a special purpose, distinct and above the purpose of any of his other creatures. Humans are special beings with a special purpose because they're made in God's image. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes our ontology this way. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Why are humans valuable? Did you see the first part? Because of the value he gave us in making us distinct from all the other creatures he made. That's why we're valuable because we're made in his image. When we think about who is our neighbor, we understand from other parables and passages that any other person we encounter in this life is our neighbor. And now we understand why. When we look upon another human being, we are looking at a fellow image bearer made in his image just like us. Someone God made with a precious, immortal soul of immense value and for whom he intends a spiritual purpose. By the way, this is a fundamental reason why Christians are against abortion. At the moment that a new fertilized egg with with his or her own set of unique human DNA, that's a new image bearer right there. It's a person with value just as valuable as you or me. We have no right to unjustly destroy that life simply because that little boy or little girl is inconvenient. I will say with no apology, you cannot compromise on abortion and be consistent with the teaching of God's word. Say it again. Thank you. Back to the lesson. So we love ourselves and we love our neighbors in light of understanding that we and they are human beings made in the image of God, immortal souls of immense value. God, the Creator, is the only one that we are to love more than our fellow people. Just a small teaching moment here. Jesus has given us the two greatest commandments here in Mark. If you still have your finger in Matthew, look, look at 22 verse 40. Jesus makes a closing statement. He says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you've never understood that before, understand it now. We're not going to go deeply into it, but look at the two tables of the law and the Ten Commandments. You don't have to turn to Exodus 20. You should do that on your own later. The London Baptist Confession again, it says this. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables. The four first containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. That's my challenge for you this week when you're doing your follow-up study. Read the Ten Commandments through this lens. How to love God and how to love your neighbor. It will benefit you. We need to finish up here. Verse 32. Back in Mark. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. We don't truly know the scribe's intent when he asked the question other than that it says he was trying to test Jesus. We don't know what answer he was expecting or hoping to receive. Maybe he even lost a bet against one of the Sadducees when they all heard the answer. Who knows? But we do see him recognize that Jesus has just spoken the truth. The way he responds in the Greek is not only to tell Jesus that his answer is objectively correct without qualification but to characterize the answer with nobility, truthfulness, expertise. He acknowledges again that Jesus has a superior understanding of the Scripture to how the scribes understand. Look what he says in verse 33. It's almost like a light bulb goes on. He says that to keep these two commandments is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's just starting to get it. Maybe maybe he's thinking of Hosea 6, where God speaks through the prophet that he doesn't want sacrifices. He wants your heart and your mind to be inclined toward him. Or maybe he's thinking of 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel says this, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. Listening, your heart, your ears, your mind, they're inclined toward God. They want what He wants. He prefers that to sacrifice. We can see, along with this scribe, God doesn't delight in His people giving things up for Him. He doesn't want outward legalistic asceticism. He's not interested in your self denial. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't want you to give up things out of some sense of duty to him. What he wants, what he deserves, is a heart that is inclined toward him. Ears that can't wait to hear what he would say. Far better is when his people earnestly desire to know him and love him because of their love they obey. Do you see how different it is? The Christian life has a list of do's and don'ts is absolutely miserable. And not only is it miserable, it also has very little value. Now don't be confused. I'm not giving you license here to go and do all manner of sin and wickedness and law-breaking. So please don't think that. We're not ascetics, which means we're not like monks living lives of perpetual self-flagellation and denial abusing ourselves and denying ourselves any comfort, thinking that pleases God. Do you remember that's what Martin Luther used to do before he understood the just live by faith? Romans 1.17. Until he understood that, how miserable was he? Have you ever seen that movie about him? Read his story? If you're here for a long time, Pastor Cecil made us watch it every year. We got to watch it every year. <laughs> Do you know that Romans 1.17 was the verse that began the transformation of Martin Luther's Luther's theology? And that resulted in what we now call the Protestant Reformation. So we're not ascetics. We're not self-flagellating. We're not punishing ourselves. We're not living in denial of self all the time. That doesn't please God. But we're also not hedonists or antinomians. What do I mean? What's an antinomian? That's a big word. It's a person who says the law of God no longer has a place in a believer's life. And what do they do? They misquote Paul in Romans 6 where he says, we're no longer under the law but grace. We're under grace now. We're not under the law anymore. That's not what that passage means, beloved. We do obey the law of God. Why? Not because it saves us. It doesn't save us. It condemns us. But now that we're under grace, we're not worried about condemnation anymore. What does the old hymn say? Bearing shame and scoffing. Rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. We obey the law precisely because it no longer condemns us. It condemned him. And God's acceptance of us is no longer contingent on whether we keep it. We weren't able to keep it before. He kept it for us. We are free now in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the new life that God has given us to obey. We won't reach perfection in this life. We won't. But our hearts are made new. And they desire to please our Father. We're given a new identity, a new family name, a guaranteed inheritance. We carry ourselves as royalty, heads held high, no longer as prisoners condemned by the law but as the sons and daughters of the king who wrote the law. Do you understand this? We love it because it came from our father and it pleases him. We have to finish this up. Let's read verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. What happened to the scribe? Jesus saw that he answered wisely. This scribe was given some insight here. And yet Jesus merely says that he is close to the kingdom of God, but does not acknowledge the true belief and repentance of a redeemed sinner. We've seen over and over in Mark that when Jesus interacts with someone, he does not leave them or us guessing about their spiritual state or their standing before God. How many times have we seen him say directly to someone, your sin is forgiven, go in peace? Or how about the opposite? When he's interacting with with the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes, what does he say to them? He tells them directly, you're condemned. I quoted J.C. Ryle earlier. A little later in his commentary on this passage, Ryle is not optimistic that the scribe came to saving faith in the Lord. He thinks this scribe is a character similar to the rich young ruler who came close, but ultimately was not saved because he could not give up everything, repent, and become a disciple. So here's the questions for us to consider today. Here's what I hope you will meditate on as you go through your day and your week. These are questions that every Christian must ask themselves from time to time, and the text today, again, gives us the reminder to consider them first set of questions we're all gathered here today to to worship god why worship him what drives your hearts to worship we said earlier it's because he's worthy of it because we owe it to him and also because he's good i want you to ask yourself truly is your reason for worshiping god missing something is it lopsided Stand in reverent fear of a holy, awesome, terrifying, powerful God. But then enjoy him because he's good. Because he loves you. Take delight. Please, take delight in him. Question number two, second set of questions. Do you obey him? What drives that obedience? Sometimes the Christian life feels like a lot of things we want to do but can't, and a lot of things we don't want to do, but must, so we sacrifice. We give up expensive vacations and new cars so we, can, so we can give our offerings, or we give up going to that movie we know we shouldn't watch, but we really wanted to because we think giving it up pleases him, even though our heart really, really didn't want to. Beloved, I'm right here with you. I'm not preaching anything to you that I don't have to preach to myself too. Remember, he doesn't want your sacrifices. Does he need them at all? No, what does he want? He wants a heart that pursues truth, a mind that meditates on him, a soul that yearns for him, a body that's obedient and does good deeds out of love for him. Let me encourage you, church, as you worship God and as you practice Your obedience. Let it proceed from your joy of knowing Him and your delight in Him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would taste of your goodness. We know we're a people called out of darkness into the marvelous light. We know that we've been given the truth of the gospel. We know that we have an indwelling Holy Spirit, You, Yourself, living with us and in us. And yet, Lord, so often we're devoid of our joy. Make us a happy people. Happy to taste and see that You're good. Happy to be with one another. Happy to be adopted, sons and daughters of the King with a rich inheritance, the glory of God given to your people. Lord, we look forward to the day when we can see your face and realize these things fully. Until then, preserve us, draw us near, make us a people that yearn for you, and make us a people that obey out of love.